And I've heard several comments. John the Baptist and John the Apostle are two different people. John the Apostle is the writer of this epistle, along with 1st, 2nd, 3rd John in the Revelation. John the Baptist uh, is, uh, is not John the Apostle. When he mentions John in this book, it's John the Baptist. He never mentions himself in this book. He always calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. So uh, for those of you who had some misgivings about that, Maybe due to my poor teaching, I apologize, but there we know these things now. So let's move along. We are almost finished with the prologue. And remember, this whole book is, is, is uh, outlined by the prologue. The prologue in the first 18 verses of the chapter John of John, they tell us what is going to be more specifically identified in the rest of the book. And this, what did we say? Why was this book written? Everybody, I want to beat on this. So everything you read in this book, is, is we're going to understand through the lens of why was this book written. And it is written for John 20, 30, and 31. So someone who can read loudly and plainly, read this verse to me. For those of you who are first-timers in here or uh, have, have, have not heard the first three lessons. This book is written just like the book of First John was written for this specific reason. And what is that reason? You believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. So you may believe that Jesus is Christ and He is the Son of God, and that believing in His name you may have life. And so what John does is everything he writes is going to be slanted to these themes. The divinity of Christ. Everything he says is Christ is God. He is fully God and He's fully man. And so that's the theme. We're going to talk about life, abundant life, eternal life. We're going to talk about this concept of believing, especially when we get into John chapter 3 and we get into John chapter 10 and we get into John chapter 12. All of these are topics, and this is, a, this is a great book of theology, and this book is very, very, very evangelistic. And matter of fact, what we're going to talk about today with Nathan and his calling as a disciple is a picture of evangelism. And we'll try to, uh, as Keith would say, unpack that. So, but everything he does, we need to focus on. This is what he's trying to get through to the reader, to the Jew who's lost, to the Jew who's saved and to the Gentile and the Greek minds who are consumed with philosophies and what you think and that type of thing. John tries to contour this book toward <coughs> these themes. And we looked at the prologue, and we said, uh, it starts out, we said, in the beginning is the logos. We talked about the Greek philosophy of that. In the beginning, you can put the word Jesus because Jesus is the summation of the Logos and the whole theology of that, the will of God, the mind of God. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Everything points to, for evangelism, that Jesus is God, and He's fully God and fully man. And we've talked about this uh, prologue uh, over the last three weeks. And now we're on verse 14. Uh, as we look at this uh, prologue, First John chapter 14, and the Word and the Logos, and Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace, 
full of truth. And John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me is ranks higher than I do, for he existed before I did. He was before me. And of this fullness we've all received, grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who's in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Now we'll get to uh, lesson four sometime today. I'll go ahead and read it. Now this is a testimony of John the Baptizer. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask Him, Who are you? He confessed, and He didn't deny, but He confessed, I'm not Christ. And they asked Him, Who are you, Elijah? And He said, No. Are you the prophet? And he said, No. Then they said to them, to him, Who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? And John in his humility says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees, and they asked him, saying, Why do you baptize then if you're not Christ, if you're not Elijah, if you're not prophet? And John said, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who's coming after me. He is preferred before me whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said... After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I didn't know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I didn't know him, but he who went sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Spirit. And I have seen and I have testified that this is the Son of God. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and seeing them following, said to him, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi or Rabbonini, which is translated teacher, where are you staying? He said, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. It was 10 o'clock in the, in the morning. One of the two who heard John speak, who followed him, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We found the Anointed One, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah, or John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Peter Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses talked about in the law, and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus said, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are God's son. You are the king of Israel. 
Jesus answered and said, Because I said, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? You'll see greater things than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly, I say unto you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon God's Son. <clears throat> As we finish this prologue, 14 through... Uh, through 18, the prologue finishes where it starts, donating that Jesus is eternal, that Jesus is preexistent, that Jesus is God, He's in the bosom of God, and He's begotten of God. And so the prologue has all of its points, but in the end, the end of the prologue summates the beginning of the prologue. So it, it reinforces the most important part of the prologue, that Jesus is the Christ and He is divine and that believing in His name you may have life. And so he ends with, And Jesus became flesh. That word flesh is mortal man. But that word flesh, you know, in, in the Bible there's flesh, which is, uh, which is uh, mortal man, but it also means our sin nature. And it also has that connotation, and it, and it can relate to our skin and bones, who we are in, in ourself. But when Jesus, it says, and the word Jesus became flesh. He became mortal man, but Jesus did not have a sin nature. Jesus is born like the first Adam is. Adam is the only created work, created man. Him and Eve were created without a sin nature. So Jesus as a second Adam, he has no sin nature. He is fully man, like every way like us, but he does not have a sin nature Sin cannot be attached to him in any way, okay? When he, when our sin is imputed to him, it's credited to his account, but he himself does not become sin. It's credited to his account. So I want you to understand that Jesus is a man, but Jesus as a man did not have a sin nature like we do. So when it says he became flesh, he became a mortal man, but he did not have a sin nature. That's critical we understand that. He did not have a sin nature. Okay? Then it says, and he dwelt among us. That word dwelt, I'm not going to follow my outline as far as writing all this on the board because you can't read my slop anyway. But the word dwelt, uh, the actual word is tabernacled. So Jesus tabernacled amongst us. Emmanuel, God with us. And the, and the understanding, this is written to the Jew and to the Gentile. But the word tabernacle to the Jewish mind is going to, is going to do what? What is the Jew going to understand about the fact that Jesus tabernacled amongst us? Without looking at your notes, what are your thoughts on that? What do, where do we get this word? What is the significance of Jesus tabernacled with us? Pardon me? The word is lived, yes. Tabernacled. This is this refers us to the pre-temple days. A tabernacle was set up by Moses in the dire- by the direction of God, and 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 the children of Israel had a temporary tabernacle that they set up and they moved and they met. That's where God met with them. And so in, uh, I don't think I have any verses in your notes, so I wanted you to write these. Let me give you some of these. Let's look at this. this. This thought that Jesus tabernacled with 
men. And we see that. Let's look at uh, uh, Exodus 25:18. Who's got... Somebody read... Uh, that doesn't work. Chris, you read Exodus 25, 8. Uh, Melanie, you read... Uh, where do I have this? I got all these notes and I can't keep up. 20, no, this going to do, Chris, you do 25, 8, and you do 26, 31 through 34, since we'll keep it all in uh, 30... What did I say? 31 through 34. Now, let's get somebody else to read. Melanie, uh, let's go with, uh, uh, you'll do uh, Exodus 33, 7 and 11. 7 through 11. And then if you will also do uh, 40, 34 through 38. This is what the Jewish mind understands when Jesus tabernacled among men. This is pointed to them so that they're going to believe. The tabernacle in the Old Testament is a picture of what is going to happen. All the Old Testament types, institutions, the feasts, the sacrifices are all pointing to Christ. The whole Bible points to Christ. And so the temporary tabernacling of Jesus in the flesh as He came and dwelt among men, His is a permanent to which the tabernacle points. But this is what the Jewish mind is going to understand from this verbiage. And it's all going to be because they're going to believe that Jesus is who He says He is. So go ahead, Chris, and uh, let's look at, gleam some things from these verses. Okay, this is 25, 8. Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. And then 26. 31 through 34. Uh, you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen. It shall be made with cherubim, the work of a skillful workman. You shall hang it on the four pillars of acacia wood, I mean, excuse me, acacia overlaid with gold. Their hooks also being of gold and four sockets of silver. You shall hang up the veil under the clasps and shall bring the ark of the testimony there within the veil. And the veil shall serve you as a partition between the holy place and the holy of holies. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the holy of holies. Beautiful. Melanie, got 33, 7-11. Now Moses used to take the tent and, pick, pitch, and pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And it came about, whenever Moses went out to the tent, that all the people would arise and stand, each at the entrance of his tent, and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. Whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and worship, each at the entrance of his tent. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. And then you want me to Is that all right? Yeah, do, did you do 40, 34 through 38 also? Yes. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Jesus was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. 
But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day when it was taken up. For throughout all their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and there was fire in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. Thank you very much. Good reading. I'll pick on you more often. Jesus tabernacled among men. And this connotation to the Jewish mind is this is where God dwelt with the people. This is where God met with the people. This is the tent of meeting. The people had to arise because God would be present. And he demonstrated that by his pillar of cloud by day and the fire by night. And the reason I didn't finish this word is because somebody please look up how to spell Shekinah glory. Because I do not know. And I don't want to butcher the glorious word. I think it's, I don't know. So somebody look up Shekinah. That's somebody's task. What do you think it is? I-N-A-H. The Shekinah glory. This is the visible manifestation of who God is intrinsically. Is that, is that right? Is this word spelled right? Thank you. Shekinah glory of God. This is where the Shekinah glory of God met with the people. His visible manifestation of who He is intrinsically. So when when the Jews saw that Jesus tabernacled amongst men, and the purpose of this writing was to focus them on who Jesus was that they may believe and have life, all of these connotations came into mind. This is specifically interesting. In the, in, the, in the temporary tabernacle that was set up as they traveled and they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years before David, before Solomon built the permanent temple, this was a small picture of what went on. The veil is the curtain that separated the common place where the priest and the, and the, and the, uh, and the, uh, and the ministers in the, uh, in the religious ceremony would be separated from the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies is where the Ark of the Covenant was. And above the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat. All this pictured approaching God. And we can't adhere to the law. So there's, by necessity, there has to be atonement for the sins of men. And we know we've talked about that in, in great detail. Uh, but this is all a picture that Jesus is going to be. And what happens when Jesus dies on the cross? The veil of the temple is torn from top to bottom, which represents God coming down and condescending to men and providing atonement for the sins of men by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. So all of these connotations would come into the mind of the Jew when John said Jesus tabernacled amongst men. So this is all purposeful for what I've talked about several times. And this Shekinah glory is the revealing of the glory that God is invisible. And the men, they couldn't, they had to hide their eyes from it. And Moses, when he was in God's presence, had a picture of this Shekinah glory on his face when he would meet with God. Well, this is the Shekinah glory that Jesus revealed. You know, Jesus is in human flesh and he veils his deity to a large extent in his physical. But when he went to the Mount of Transfiguration, he unveiled his Shekinah glory. So it was a bright light that was unapproachable to Peter, James, and John, and they had to hide from it. And it freaked them out, and they didn't know how to respond. And Peter said, can we just build you three tabernacles? What else do you say? And so, but that's, this is all this dwelling. This is the this is where God met with the people, and this is what later Jesus is going to do when He transfigured, He unveils His glory. And so they see what has been uh, suppressed by His flesh, and veiled in flesh. 
Uh, is the song, Christmas song, Veiled in Flesh, the Godhead. Is it C? Hail the Incarnate Deity. So this is all putting together. This is what John is talking about. As we look at uh, the Word became flesh and we, and we beheld His glory, this glory is predominantly not the physical, but the glory He's talking about is His spiritual attributes, His moral purity and perfection. And we see that, that remember, we're later we're going to get into this. As a matter of fact, I'll go ahead and say... Uh, at the bottom of 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who's in the bosom of the Father, He's declared Him. That word is exegete. Jesus exegetes what God is. He, clar- he clarifies and specifically tells us and declares to us, when you exegete Scripture, you interpret it and you declare it. So Jesus in human flesh exegetes who God is. He declares who God is. And so we in our humanness can say, that's God as a man. Because we, have, we lose brain cells when we try to focus on the infinite God. And we can't wrap our brains around it. But when He veils him, when he comes as a man, He demonstrates who God is. Okay, And he, he lives who God is. And when we look at this book of John, as you actually see who God is you have a clearer understanding that He's a God, and we're going to understand what love is, and we're going to understand what humility is, and we're going to understand what being a servant is, and we're going to understand compassion for people. And I hope it changes your perspective and helps you more understand who God is by how Jesus lived His life, how Jesus reacted to sinners, and how we react to sinners, okay? It's going to be a major difference. That's why this book is so dear to me and to Uh, others who have told me the same thing because we're going to see the Shekinah glory in a human and it's going to display itself in life and it's going to be our example and it's going to teach us how to live and it all points us and it all points people who we come in contact with this truth, okay, about who He is. So, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father... Some people are confused about He's the only begotten Son. And then you see that in 18.2, the only begotten Son. MacArthur says it's a mistranslation of the Greek. The word begotten has no context that He was beget at any time. So this does not talk about His origin. When Jesus is the only begotten of the Father, it does not talk about the fact that He began at some time. He's not begat so to speak. He's always existed. But it, it does mean, and I think I have in my notes, uh, I don't, I'm not even going by my notes, so I don't even know where my note is. Let's see here. Uh, number four. This does not connotate origin, but unique prominence. The word has the idea of only beloved one and carries with it the exclusive character of relationship. It does not carry it that Jesus was begat or had a beginning. So there you go. So when it says He's the only begotten of the Father, it's talking about this, the, human, the intimate relationship that's always existed between the two persons of the Godhead, the Father and the Son. Very important that He is divine. He never began. He's always preexisted and He's eternal. So that's critical to this doctrine of of theology, this doctrine of God. Uh, I would say also, just moving along, 15, we've, we've talked about that. Verse 16, I think, is important. Uh, of His fullness, we've all received grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses. 
but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus explains who God is. And so this is taken, this, this, this phrase, grace and truth came through Jesus, is going to cause us to look back to Exodus 34, 8. When Moses is, is asking God to show him his glory, when Moses is asking God to let him see him, and, and, and to, Moses has this craving to actually understand who God is. And so God explains himself. This is in 33 and 34 of Exodus. Sacred text you ought to read. But, uh, but, uh, in this beautiful picture, look at 33, uh, uh, I gotta read it all. Hey, 33:17. So the Lord in Exodus 33:17. So the Lord said to Moses, uh, "I will do this thing that you've spoken, for you found grace in my sight, and you and I know you by name." And uh, he knows all of his people by name. And he said, please show me your glory. Then God said, I'll make my goodness and mercy pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. But he said, you can't see my face, or no man can see my face and live. And as the Lord said, here is a place by me, and you will stand on the rock, and it shall be when my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock. And that's a picture, of course, of Christ's salvation, Him putting us in Christ, in the rock. And uh, and I'm going to take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face you can't see. And then if you'll move on to chapter 34, uh, this is the Lord as He descends in the cloud and proclaims Himself to, to uh, Moses. Look at 34, 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sins, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children, children's children, children's children. And what did Moses do? He bowed his head toward the earth and he worshipped. And so... This is the, the mental picture that the Apostle Paul, John, is given to the Jewish reader that it is, we, Jesus is filled with grace and truth. This is the picture of who Jesus is and, and all those definitions, long-suffering, slow to anger, plenteous in mercy. All of these are, define His grace and His truth, and it's going to sort of point us to the fact that Jesus is the truth, and uh, we'll talk about that in a second. But uh, but uh, John Calvin said that uh, this G- Jesus was an inexhaustible fountain of grace and truth from which all of us must draw. Now this law thing, why was the law given? He uses this as a contrast, as John does in this book. And remember why he's doing it. Because he's pointing us to Jesus. And so he talks about this. Moses gave us the law, but mercy and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law was never intended, nor could it ever bring salvation. Because we are sinners. And we sin because we're sinners. So the law, basically what it does, it points us to God's holiness. And it is a mirror. As we look into the perfect law of God, we see Him 
And it's a two-way mirror, and we see us, and we say, I can never measure up to His perfect holiness, right? So the law is given to show us our need of a Savior. And so Moses was given the law that reflected who God is, His character, and who God wanted His people to be. We see that we can't measure up. So Jesus is the answer to what the law cannot do, right? The law cannot save you. That's why legalism will never work, because it's religion, and it's your way of approaching God your way. But the law points us to the only way, and that's Christ. Everybody understand that? The law can't save. There's nothing wrong with the law, but it is powerless to save, okay? Only Christ can save. So this law reflection is all pointing to this. Jew, you're born Jewish, you're Judaizer, you're Jewish, you are, you believe the, you read the scripture and you think because you have the scripture that you're a believer. But the point is, and you're, the point is, you must turn to Christ because you yourself are sinners. And you claim that the law is given to you, but you can't adhere to the law. That's Romans 1, 2, 3. Okay? So, that's the point of this. That's the difference. The law is given through Moses. Then this verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. Two meanings. We just read the one. We can't look on God and live. As, as God told Moses, God in His infinite spirit being. But the point of it is that Jesus exegetes who God is. We can't see God physically, but Jesus explains to us so that we can see God spiritually. And He opens our eyes. He gives us the ability to now be reconciled to God. So all that verbiage points back to in the beginning was Jesus, that Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Okay? So all of this circles itself, pointing to His preeminence. He's the one that must give life. He's the one we must believe in. It's His theology, and this is evangelistic so that we may believe in Christ. Everybody understand the prologue? And we say, wow, important. Important. Now we're going to go to the next section, and everybody have lesson four. Any questions about the prologue? Feel free to ask now because it's sort of like you can't do calculus unless you know how to do algebra. So if you get into calculus and you don't know how to do algebra, you are out of luck. Yes, sir. Meaning what? Dwelling. And so when we talk about the Shekinah glory, you know, the, the picture there is, we always, we always talk about like a pillar of fire coming down, holy holies, and things like this, but isn't it more accurately thought about in terms of it's God with us, it's Emmanuel, if you want to think about it in that respect. And so it's God's glory dwelt within the tabernacle, within the holy of holies, so that God was with his people. And what John is saying, Absolutely. He is that light in the Holy of Holies here amongst us in this temporary way just as the original tabernacle. Excellent. Very good summation. And we appreciate you being here. That's good. Chapter Lesson 4. This is interesting to me that uh, John would, the apostle, describe... 
John the Baptist's work three different days, three different people, each way pointing to Jesus in a specific and different way. So as you read this, you're drawn to the fact that we have... Verse 19 is one day. Now, this is a testimony of John the baptizer. Okay, that's one day. We've, we divide it like this. Verse 29, the next day. Day 2. Verse 35, the next day. Day 3. And then day 4, which is not a record of John the Baptist, but continues this thinking. And then we see Jesus meeting the disciples, and we see record of his calling of the first few disciples. But I thought it was interesting that the John the Apostle organizes John the Baptist ministry in three separate days to three separate people, each specific pointing to Jesus in a different way. I hadn't noticed that before. That's courtesy of John MacArthur's mind, so I thought that was interesting. The first one uh, we see... Uh, this is John the Baptist, and this is his ministry in the first one. So we got day one here, and this is his first group, people group. And the first people group he, he ministers to is the religious leaders, and most specifically uh, the priests and the Levites, who were the ones set up by God to minister the sacrifices they were the spiritual leaders, and they were most probably from this group of people within the Jewish community called the Sanhedrin. They were probably from this religious sect, and so the Sanhedrin sent the also which came from this group called the Pharisees. All of these guys came into being in the 400 years and uh, between the Testaments and I may be butchered on the Sadducees, but we see these groups of people come into being. We'll explain them a little more, what they believe and what they don't believe and how they differ. But the first group of people John the Baptist deals with is the religious leaders of the day. And they are naturally defending the truth. They naturally want to know who John the Baptist is because John the Baptist is baptizing people. And, and, and the common mode of baptism there is submersion, but it is a baptism into Judaism, into the doctrine of the Jew into the into the uh, the Pentateuch the five first five books of the Old Testament so they are they have a right and a responsibility to defend the dogma of the Jewish faith and they're wondering why this guy is out there in in a, in a eating locust and dressed in a, in a wild man's outfit with long hair they're wondering is he uh, what's he doing out there so they have a, a good reason to ask what's going on and so they ask this. And so they ask him a few questions. First thing they ask John the Baptist, and they do that because, uh, uh, verse 24, why are you baptizing? Uh, what right do you have, basically, are you doing this? What are you doing? And so they ask him this question. First thing they say are, are you Christ? So they ask him, I think they ask him three questions. Well, we'll if it's four, I'll erase it. Let's see, three questions. They ask him the first things, are you Christ? Ironic. We'll get into that as we get into this book. Then they ask him, are you Elijah? And then they ask him, are you the prophet? 
And I capitalized the because they had a specific verse in mind when they asked him this question. So they asked him this, uh, who are you? And they asked him, he's Christ. And notice uh, John the Baptist, two times he confesses, he confesses, and, and he did not deny. He says, I'm not Christ. Never claimed to be. He's a forerunner of Christ. He knew his role. He's six months older than Christ. He knew Jesus as a relative, but he didn't particularly have all the information yet, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But uh, he said, so he asked, are you Christ? He says, no, I'm not Christ. And then he uses these verses. Do I have the verses in the notes? Let's see. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. da 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 uh, Yes, yeah, so he looks at, uh, let's look at uh, Luke 3, 15 through 17. Luke 3, 15 through 17. This is going to be uh, the synoptic version of, uh, of what uh, John the Apostle is talking about in his book that he wrote 50 years later. John 3, uh, Luke 3, 15 through 17. Now as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was a Christ or not. John said, I baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose. So he always understood in each of the synoptics, he said, I am not the Christ. I do not rank where Christ, I do not rank where Christ ranks. As a matter of fact, he says, the typical slave function is to unlatch the sandals of his master. He says, I'm not even worthy to do that. So John the Baptist is a humble guy. And that's one of the reasons why Jesus said all the prophets born among women, there's not a greater than John the Baptist. He's a humble guy. And he was, his life was dedicated to the leveling of the way for the coming of the Messiah. So he said, no, I'm not Christ. And so we see that supported by the other synoptics. We also, next question, are you Elijah? So they're going to take these verses, uh, in, uh, Malachi 3, 1 and 4, 5 that we studied Recently, when we did the Minor Prophets, they're going to ask these questions. They understood from Malachi, written uh, 400 and, uh, probably 450 years earlier, they understood that something was going to happen before the Messiah came. So they're asking Him rightly. Uh, look at Malachi 3.1, I send my messenger who will pair the way before me. So they're saying, are you Elijah? And then more specifically, it talks about Elijah 4.5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. And so they're saying, are you Elijah the prophet? And he says, no, I'm not Elijah. But he says, I am the voice of one. He says, I'm not Elijah. But he says, I am the voice. He don't even identify himself as a specific uh, uh, prophecy uh, fulfillment, but he says, I'm the voice. And so he looks to Isaiah 43, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. So he's a leveler and he is, he is preparatory for the coming of Jesus Christ. So John the Baptist says, no, I'm not Elijah, but I'm the voice. I'm the fulfillment of Isaiah 43, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And then they say, are you the prophet? And the prophet they're talking about is in Deuteronomy, Moses speaking. We see that in Deuteronomy. I want you to turn there. Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18. This is a type. This is a 
verse that points specifically to be literally fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And so they read this and they understand that this prophet is someone that is going to come. But they, so they ask the question rightly, are you the prophet spoken of in Deuteronomy 18? Verse 15, chapter 18, Deuteronomy, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear according to all you desire to the Lord your God at Horeb. That's where the Ten Commandments were given in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire any more. And then it says, verse, And the Lord said to me, What they have spoken is good. I will, future tense, certainty, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among the brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth. Of course, Jesus, the words I speak are not my own, but are my Father's. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. So Jesus is the fulfillment of this verse. So they would naturally ask, Are you the prophet? He said, No, I'm not the prophet. I am who I am. And then we see this. This is very important in verse 26. John differentiates in his humility to point the way to Christ, to take the spotlight from off him. John said, he must increase, I must decrease. Okay. So what John does is he differentiates between his baptism and Jesus' baptism. John's baptism is external, and it is preparatory, and it is symbolic. It is a preparation to receive the coming of Christ. It is a washing of sins symbolically. It is preparing the nation of Israel for the kingdom coming, which is Jesus Christ. And it is preparatory and it is symbolic. Just as to baptism today, to us is symbolic and it represents dying to the old man and being raised to walk in newness of life. We're dying, we're buried in Christ in baptism and we're raised to walk in newness of life. So John the baptisms was preparatory and symbolic. And Jesus' baptism, of course, is internal and it is of the Holy Spirit. And did I have another difference? Pardon me? Life-changing. I'm glad y'all can read better than I can remember. So we see John. I'm just a man. I'm just a preparer for the truth and the way. My baptism is this. That's how you know I'm not Christ. But this is how you know He's Christ because He changes you from the inside out. And His Holy Spirit is at work and when He changes you. And that changes makes a life a difference. And that is that. Everybody understand John the Baptist? Question one, this is how he points them to Christ. There's a difference between my external baptism and Christ's internal baptism. And it's evangelistic. It's telling the Jews, this don't save you. He saves, okay? And so we're all pointing this way that you may believe, okay? Yes, ma'am. Uh, most of the baptisms at that time were into Judaisms, and that's why the Pharisees were asking this question. Are you, are you following the right protocol? Are you sure these people understand? And they, you know, 
And so, no, uh, his his baptisms, the the Pharisees thought that's why he, he was baptizing this one for this reason. He was not getting people right. Yes, he is not baptizing them into Judaism. That's probably one of the reasons they were asking these questions also. But typically, the baptisms were into Judaism's. John's is preparatory. Good question, and I hope I, I didn't uh, confuse you by that. But uh, yes. Did the, uh, did the Jews understand that, uh, when they were talking about the prophets that this was the ultimate prophet that they were talking about? Because John Baptist was considered to be a prophet by the Jews, right? Yes. And Jesus even referred to him as a prophet, right? Yes, yes. But not the ultimate prophet, which is referred to... Yeah, the Jews, uh, their eyes were blinded, and they couldn't see. And so they were looking for a Messiah. They're still looking for a Messiah, Right. But yeah, they were they were confused, and so they saw someone coming who claimed to be the Messiah. So they're asking, "Are you the Messiah, John?" And when Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, they didn't believe him. So one day that fountain's going to be opened, right? And uh, yes, ma'am. Yes. Yes. Turn and prepare. And it's a baptism of, that would be under the preparatory preparatory part, baptism of repentance. Matter of fact, it is called. And he tells them to turn. He said, if you don't turn, you're going to be chopped down, right? And you're going to be thrown into the uh, into the fire. So it is very much hellfire and brimstone preaching. Like what Jesus said, would you come out to wilderness to see a what, did he, what phrase did he use? A willow in the wind? A willow in the... You know, this isn't a soft man. He doesn't have a soft message. It's repent or burn. So it's preparatory. Okay, so good good comment. Thank you as always, Sally. So now, yes? So would the baptisms that Jesus' disciples are doing a little later in John where it talks about that, they're on the other side of the river, so to speak, you know, and they're baptizing over there. There's more people being baptized. Yes, those are those are... Grace baptisms of Jesus. Are you that or yes. Because he's not doing it Jesus doesn't do it, but his disciples do it. Yes. Yes, I think so. Do you not agree, Sally? So when we see that in John four. Now, therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples. So, Sally, you don't think those are followers of Christ that are being baptized? That's So you're saying that none of these people were saved before the Holy Spirit came? No, they're not saved. They're, they're, how can they be saved if Christ has not gone to the cross yet? Well, they believe in faith like Nicodemus. See, he was saved. He believed in faith. And so there are some who believe. When did he believe? He believed before. He believed. He came at night. He was afraid. He came afraid because he is at night. And he showed his evidence that he believed when he took the body of Jesus down. When he was involved in that.
How do you explain Hebrews 11? Well, this is what I'm saying. If you're sitting there and saying that nobody prior than Elijah, David, like Moses, David, Moses, I mean, on and on, there's many different examples of people who God sees as righteous. Yeah. right it points to the cross and we look back to the cross and it's faith given by him and it's just so good discussion I don't think this is a life or death issue but uh, it's a good discussion I'm glad we can agree to disagree You're talking about the pre the pre prophet believers? They were all looking to Jesus, although they didn't have full illumination. They didn't fully understand. They apprehended it by faith. And the Holy Spirit had to be in some yes. way Yes. That. Yes. But everything we have, we got from I'm glad you uh, I didn't mean that to be flippant, but I'm glad you caught me on that. Facing eternity much sooner than many of the others here, and not knowing eternity is sure. And my whole concept of that is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Absolutely, good. We see day one, who he was talking to, the focal point of it. Day two. We don't really see a description, so we just call them other other people, other Jews, other Jews. Um, yes, man. Yes, sir. Right. So there's an argument. The Holy Spirit has always existed. But the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament does not... Like David, the Holy Spirit came upon David and it stayed with him all his life. No. Yes. That's right, because he was in sin. And he and his spirit did not lead him. God's spirit did not lead him. I'm saying they were saved by the Holy Spirit. I'm not. I don't. I don't know 
how the Old Testament believers functioned as far as the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has to save a person. The Holy Spirit has to give you faith, right? That's consistent from Genesis to the Revelation. Now, whether or not in the sense that he indwelt, there's no mention of that in the the Old Testament. Right. Yet they were given specific talents and abilities, right? And that's strange because the Holy Spirit comes upon Samson. You know, Samson lives like he does, then all of a sudden the Spirit comes upon him for this task of, of knocking down the pillars and killing 3,000 Philistines. So, so it comes upon them for specific functions and tasks, but you're saying that we don't define that as indwelling for life. Is that... a, a Right, right. Right, that's true. Is you going to say something else, Doc? Yes. But until Christ was literally raised and ascended to the Father and Pentecost occurred, nobody was permanently in Welfare. Okay, so you're John 15 and 16, okay? Because that's what Jesus promised the Spirit's going to come and He can't come unless I am ascended, right? Okay, good points. Okay, so I want to understand this. So y'all are saying that for before Christ came and was resurrected, that He, the Holy Spirit like came on them just for a specific work and then left. Is that what you're saying? I want to understand it correctly. But not indwelt huh? for their whole life until Christ was resurrected. It was those that were. Yeah, because we're going from Old Testament economy into a New Testament economy of the church, which is a totally different new organism. And so it is. It does not start in the Old Testament. Right. Okay. It has to have the, the satisfaction and the. Anybody have any comment? <laughs> so back to the verse. Just be good on, just be good on what we're good on. Salvation's by faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Always. Yeah. Like They're all saved the same way we are by looking to Christ. The faith is comes from Him. And read eleven six to me. Yeah. And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He okay. is. He is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Okay. 
We don't disagree. We just may have different understandings of the permanency of the Spirit. Right. Absolutely. Right. So really, the, the people who Jesus' disciples were baptizing would fall into the Old Testament saint category. Old Testament what? Before his death. But they still... Okay. Good. Wonderful. We're all still friends. Beautiful. <laughs> Other Jews. <laughs> Boy, I tell you, we used to have some doozies in my family. Oh, my gosh. But I'm glad we can do this. And uh, Beautiful. So we got the second group of people, uh, which is going to be found in verse 29. The next day, day two, we've got another group. Jesus coming toward them. And, and, and MacArthur calls this a bridge meeting. And in this meeting, as I have in my notes... Uh, we see uh, this is a bridge section that continues John's witness uh, of Jesus, but introduces titles that are going to be later on applied to Jesus throughout the rest of the book. And so we see this meeting, we see John starting to introduce these titles of Jesus, not names for Jesus, but titles of Jesus that are going to point toward the main theme. And then he uses, this is his... Favorite, he calls him the Lamb of God. He says, behold, when he sees Jesus coming, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then we see him in verse 35. He still looks at Jesus and he says, behold, the Lamb of God. This is one of John's favorite titles for Jesus. And he uses it throughout his other writings. And specifically, let's look at some of the writings. Now, this Lamb of God is an Old Testament connotation. The Jew would understand the Lamb to be necessary, to, and this Lamb had to be sacrificed. The Lamb had to be unblemished. The Lamb had to be the first, I mean, the firstborn. All of these, uh, Understand the Jew would understand about the lamb, and we specifically see the lamb in the Passover when the lamb had to be slain and the blood of the lamb had to be put over the doorpost. So when the death angel came, which is a picture of us being redeemed from the prison of Egypt, the nation of Israel is, is exodus from Egypt, and they are redeemed. And there had to be blood of the lamb spilt. And so the Jew would understand when John the baptizer would say the lamb of God, they would understand that from their history, the importance of sacrifice and the importance of bloodshed. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Excuse me. And the life is in the blood. That's why the life has to be given up as a sacrifice. And so... We see John as one of his favorite terms, the Lamb of God. Look at the beautiful thing we see in Revelation. Those of you who are familiar with this great uh, revealing of Jesus Christ, John uses this specifically. He uses it uh, uses it most when he, we're in heaven and we're worshiping Jesus in heaven. 
Uh, but we look at this nomenclature of the Lamb of God, Revelation 5, 6. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, which I believe is a picture of the church, stood a Lamb as though it had been slain. And it's talking about His uh, omniscient eyes and the spirits within Him. Then we see... Uh, from 5, we look at 8 and 9. Now, when he had taken the scroll, this is, of course, the Lamb. He, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell before the Lamb, and they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed to us, and you have redeemed to us by your blood. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. In verse 11, verse 12, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power, riches, and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and blessing. Then in verse 13, Blessing, and honor, and glory, and power, peace be to you who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb forever and ever. If you go to 7.17 of the Revelation, you see John again using... For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water. And then you see Him described in the 17th chapter of the Revelation, 17.14. We see this favorite, one of the favorite terms of John, 17.14. These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. So we see the first title that Jesus is given by John the Baptist as he seeks to evangelize the Jew and to the Gentiles this concept. He's the Lamb of God. And I'm going to shut up. I'm going to finish. Next week we're going to finish this third day. And we're going to talk about the calling of Nathaniel and uh, the wonderful picture of evangelism there. And then we will, uh, for Easter, we'll try to talk about the first miracle, the changing of the water to wine, which is always going to point to this, but it's going to be one of the eight signs used in the book of John to point people to this, and we'll talk about that. Thank you for the conversation, and uh, let me pray. Thank you, Lord, that you're sovereign, that you love us, that you've called a people from eternity past, and you have uh, ordained us that we would be foreknown and predestined and that we would be called and we would be justified and one day glorified. We thank you that you know your people, and you've always had a people that you've reserved for yourself that wouldn't bow a knee to Baal, metaphorically speaking. And I thank you that we're included in that group, and I thank you that your spirit indwells us now. Thank you for this word. May it encourage us in your faith and help us to be true to what you called us to be. In your name we pray. Amen.